Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. It's Thursday morning, and it's time for our weekly Parsha Shir. This week, we have a double Parsha. Parsha is Matos and Masai, which means this Shabbos is Shabbos Chazak, where we shout Chazak, Chazak, Venis Chazek. And of course, tonight and tomorrow is Rosh Chodesh Av. It's appropriate that we wish each other and bless each other with strength, and that Hashem should bless the new month. Um, for us and for all Jews, um, we're beginning the nine days. Uh, the Gemara tells us that Mashiach was born on Tishabov. So please, God, with the help of Hashem, uh, may we merit uh, to have the rebuilding of the Beis HaMikdash, please, God, this year in Yerushalayim with the coming of Mashiach. There's a great story that I really like. Um, here's how it goes. I would say it's probably about 400 years ago, there was a shul in Tzfas. And there in this, this shul had four great Jewish luminaries, four of the greatest Jewish stars of the time, all davened in the same shul, which <laughs> is maybe a miracle in its own right. But anyways, four of the greatest Jewish sages of the time, all davened in the same shul. Who were they? In no particular order, of course. Number one was the Holy Ari, the Arizal, uh, the master of studying and teaching Kabbalah, upon whose works and writings uh, pretty much all the Kabbalistic works that we have today, other than the Zoyar, are based on the writings of the Ari. Number two, there was the famous Alshich, the Alshich who wrote a sefer called Torah's Moshe, a sefer of explanations on Chumash. Uh, he called it Torah's Moshe. Uh, Jews usually refer to it as the Alshich, also Davin the natural. Number three, Reb Shloima Alkabetz, the author of L'chod Doidi, that every shul in the world sings Friday night. And number four, the Rav of the shul was the Beis Yosef, uh, the author of the Shulchan Aruch himself, Rabbi Yosef Karo. No, how do you have four such great rabbis in the same shul? I like to joke that there was, you know, 20 members, but that's my joke. Um, how do you divide, how do you divide the role among four such, such great, uh, you know, the greatest in, in terms of their, their contribution in, 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 in Jewish history is unparalleled. So actually there, there was very clear job descriptions for all of them. The shul had a rov. The rov was, of course, the Beis Yosef, the author of the Shulchan Aruch, the Poisak. The Beis Yosef was the rov. The shul had a chazan. The chazan was Rabbi Shloima Alkabetz, the, the, the singer, the, the poet, the, the tzaddik. Uh, Rabbi Shloima Halei was a lady. He wrote author L'chadoidi. He was the chazan, of course, no one better than that. Who would give the droshes? Who would give the speeches? Of course, the alshich, the, the, the greatest baldarshan, one of the greatest bali drush in Jewish history. And every Shabbos afternoon, the holy Ari, the Ari HaKadosh, would also give a shir. He, he, of course, would give a shir in Kabbalah. Now, the four rabbis respected each other tremendously, of course. And uh, they all deferred to each other in their area of expertise. The Beis Yosef was the Rav. His piskei din were piskei din. Rabbi Shloim Alkabetz was the chazan. Chazan is a chazan. The Alshich gave the drosha. Drosha is a drosha. And they all attended the shiurim that the Ari HaKadosh would give on Kabbalah. 
Um, it's actually not for now, but, but I believe um, the world misunderstands to a large degree Rabbi Yosef Karo, the, the Beis Yosef, the author of the Shulchan Aruch. He's tend to be seen as more of a legal or a sort of technical black and white individual. Uh, but it's actually not the truth. He, he, he was a tremendously spiritual person. He himself wrote a book, um, if I remember correctly, the book is called Magid Meshorim. Things that he learned from his spiritual guide, from his from his magid, who was a, basically a malach, an angel, who would study Torah with him. He wrote a book on the Torah that he learned from this from this individual, um, and all of them, you know, so the base Yosef for sure, and all of them were they were they would sit at the shear of the Ari every Shabbos or whenever he would give it to a teach couple. All right, now if any of you have ever been to a shear, you know that people fall asleep at the shear. I like to tell the story at shiurim because you know. It's a gentle reminder to people. So people, it's the Jewish custom. It's fine. Jewish people fall asleep uh, during shiurim. So the Ari was giving the shir, and one of the people who kept falling asleep during the shir was the Alshech. The Alshech, the, the, the Torah's Moshe, the author of Torah's Moshe, would fall asleep during the Ari's Kabbalah shir. And actually it bothered the Alshech tremendously that he was falling asleep. He, he really wanted... To, to remain alert and awake to absorb the Torah of the Ari. But it seems like no matter what he did, he just couldn't stay awake through the rabbi's speech. He even tried napping before the shear so that he'd be able to stay awake before him, and it didn't help. He started to get the sense that there was more to it, that there was, that there was a deeper reason for, for why this was happening to him. And so he he consulted with the Ari and he asked him, why is this happening to me? Why am I falling asleep as soon as he starts teaching Kabbalah? And the Ari gave him a fascinating answer. The holy Ari, the Arizal, said to him, there are four, at least four levels of interpreting Torah. And Torah can be understood on at least four levels. They're called Pshat, Remes, Drush, and Soit. Pshat is the simple meaning. Remez means a hint uh, on a homiletical level. In other words, things can be understood to be hinting to other things. Drash is, is medrash. And so it is Kabbalah. The Ari said to him, my neshama is connected to the realm of soy. That's why, of course, I, I teach Kabbalah. Yours, said the Ari to the Alshich, is connected to the world of drush. Right? It's a different... It's a different realm. It's a different world, if you will. Pshat, Remes, Drush, and Soit. Dari said, you belong in the world of Drush, and I belong in the world. Your neshama belongs in the world of Drush, and mine belongs in the world of Soit. When I start teaching Torah as it's understood in the world of Soit, your neshama kind of switches off because it knows intuitively that this form of learning Torah is not part of its mission. It's, it's realm, it's world, it's, it's perspective, it's, it's mission. To study Torah is not Kabbalah, it's Drush. And so in order not to get distracted, in order not to get thrown off from its mission in this world, your neshama tunes out and, so to speak, forces you to fall asleep. So that you, the Alshich, remain loyal to your divine mission um, of studying Torah in the realm of Drush. According to the way I heard the story, the Alshech was initially not happy about this. In other words, he wanted very much 
to be able to partake of, of, of the world of soy that the Ari was teaching. And the Ari basically told him, it's not for you. That, that's, that's the story, which is, it's an incredible story. It's also, you know, an interesting justification for sleeping uh, <laughs> through Shiurim, but, but, but there it is, there's the story. And basically on a broader level, what the Ari was really telling him is that every soul in this world needs to know its realm. It needs to know where it belongs and needs to stay loyal to that realm. If you deviate, even if, even if you deviate to another form or another level of studying Torah, then you're not really paying tribute. You're not being sufficiently respectful to the realm of study Torah in which you belong. All right, that's my introduction. Um, now let's get into this year. So if you have a Chomesh in front of you, we'll study a couple of Psukim in Parshas Maseh. Um, to almost toward the end of the entire parsha, the Torah talks about a mitzvah called Ir Miklat, very famous, um, spoken about by the Torah in a few places. Um, and here is, I believe, the place where the Torah gives it the most airtime. Um, I want to read actually just two or three psukim, uh, three, or, three or four psukim. Here it is, Perak Lamed Hay, chapter 35. Pasuk Chofei, Pasuk 25. So this, this story is that one Jew has killed another Jew uh, without intention. He's done so unintentionally. The Jew who, the, the unintentional murderer is taken to the Jewish court. They assess his case to see if the murder is in fact uh, halachically considered unintentional. They come to the conclusion in this particular case as the Torah, uh, they come to the conclusion that in fact he had no intention of killing. And yet, although he had no intention of killing, the Goyal Hadam, the relative of the victim, um, is still either allowed or obligated to pursue the unintentional murder and kill him. Um, in, in, in a vengeance for the blood of the person who's been, who's, who's been killed. So the, the Bezdin would be obligated, says the Torah, once it reaches the conclusion that the murder was unintentional, they would return him to his city of refuge. All right, the reason why the Torah says they would return him there is, is because Anybody who commits an act of murder, whether it was intentional or unintentional, whenever one Jew, Rahman Litzlan, murdered another Jew, the first thing he had to do was flee to the city of refuge. Um, the Bezdin would actually have him removed from the city of refuge to come to the Bezdin and stand trial for what happened. If, in fact, it was determined in court that his murder was unintentional, um, then he would be returned to the city of refuge. That's what the Torah says. He would, he would be returned to the, the city of refuge. There was basically one of three possibilities. Either his murder was considered intentional, in which case he may be even, uh, he may even get the death penalty, right? Depending if there were witnesses, etc. Either it was intentional, in which case he, he would get the death penalty, but definitely he would not go to the city of refuge or it was deemed unintentional. If it was unintentional, he would be returned to the city of refuge, or his, the murder would be considered something completely beyond his control, what's called an onus, which means something happened and, and it wasn't 
a mistake means he could have controlled it. He just, he just wasn't sufficiently careful. Honest means something happened that was completely, completely beyond his control. Uh, you know, right, the Gemara gives different examples of this, but it's not for now. If something happened completely beyond his control, then also you wouldn't have to go to the city of refuge. Um, he, 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 would, he, would be consider, he would be exonerated in the sense that he wouldn't, be, he wouldn't even be held liable enough to have to go to the city of refuge because it was beyond his control. But if they deemed that it was un, a regular unintentional case, he would go back to the city of refuge, that he had fled there. The Yoshev boss says the Torah, he, should, he, would, he, the unintentional murderer, would live in the city of refuge until the death of the Kohen Godel, who was anointed with the holy oil that was used in the Mishkan to anoint the Kohen Godel. Next, verse 26. And if the unintentional murderer, the murderer leaves the borders of the city of refuge, and the avenger of the blood finds him outside the borders of the city of refuge, the, the, the relative of the victim murdered the unintentional murder, Ein dam, quote, he has no blood, meaning to say the relatives of the victim would kill or could kill or were obligated to kill, separate discussion. Um, this, this individual, this unintentional murderer, if he, ever, if he ever left the city of refuge without any consequence to them, usually if you, if you kill a Jew, uh, you know, you, you can face the death penalty. In this case, they, again, they were either allowed or there was a mitzvah to kill this, this unintentional murderer if he, left the, if he left the cities of refuge. Finally, if he was obligated to live, to sit, to dwell in the city of refuge till the death of the Kohen Gadol, and only after the death of the Kohen Gadol, the unintentional murderer could return to the land of his inheritance, and then he would be protected by law. Nobody would be allowed to touch him. Um, if they did, if they did, uh, they, they would be liable. If they murdered him, they would be liable with, with their own lives. So the mitzvah is that the individual has to, has to live in the city of refuge until the death of the Kohen God. It's a very layered and very nuanced mitzvah. Um, it, it has many fascinating elements to it. We spoke last week about a scenario that Gomorrah discusses in which a Rosh Yeshiva, um, by mistake, uh, un unintentionally murders somebody and is sentenced to the city of refuge. And uh, the Gomorrah says his entire Yeshiva would go, would go to the city of refuge with him. Um, if a student of the Yeshiva killed unintentionally and was sentenced to the city of refuge, the entire yeshiva would go with him, including the Rosh Yeshiva. We spoke about it a little, we spoke about it a little bit last week. Um, there's many different uh, elements to it. For today, let's talk about this business where the Torah says that he has to live there until the death of the Kohen God. That's how long his sentence is, till the death of the Kohen God, right? The commentaries talk about the fact that, that this means that some people would live in the city of refuge their whole life. And some people would be in the city refuge for a very short amount of time. Depends, right? Depends when the Kohen Gadol dies. If he dies the day after you get to the city of refuge, then one day is sufficient for you. 
if he dies 50, 60 years after you get to the city of refuge, well, then you're stuck there for, for 50, 60 years, right? The commentaries give an interesting explanation for that, parenthetically. They say, well, what the Torah is really saying here is that even a person who killed unintentionally needs some form of a kapora. They need some form of an atonement, right? The, the fact that, that something like this happened to you, even unintentionally, means that you have some kind of connection to it, means that you're associated with it somewhat. But the, the commentaries say only Hashem knows the level of association. Only Hashem knows, you know, how much of a kapora you really need. And so that's why it was up to Hashem, you know, who killed when and when the Kohen Gadol died and, and, you know, things of that nature. It's why you'll often hear Jewish people say, ah, Zosayna Kapora, right? In other words, because there's certain parts of this Kapora element that really only Hashem knows. So we leave it up to Hashem. Hashem will decide, you know, when the Kohen Gadol dies and how long people have to live in the, in the city of refuge. Okay. What happens... Now, again, this, this becomes an integral part. He would live there until the death of the Kohen Gadol. The Gemara says, what happens if somebody, this is typical Gemara thinking, right? what happens if somebody killed by accident, but it so happens that he actually killed the Kohen Gadol. The victim of his unintentional murder was the Kohen Gadol. Or by the same token, a Kohen Gadol who killed unintentionally. Or a third scenario with the same halacha. What happens if a Kohen Gadol dies and then a person kills unintentionally? And then they appoint the next Kohen Gadol. So let's say a per, the Kohen Gadol number one dies on Sunday. Somebody kills unintentionally on Monday and a new Kohen Gadol is appointed on Tuesday. So at the time that the murder happens, There was no Kohen Gadol. So the Torah says in all these three cases, if you killed a Kohen Gadol unintentionally, if a Kohen Gadol killed unintentionally, or if you killed at the time that there was no Kohen Gadol, in all three cases, the person would be stuck there for life. There would be no possibility for him to leave the city of refuge with the death of the Kohen Gadol. Because again, either he killed the Kohen Gadol, or he is the Kohen Gadol himself who killed, or at the time that he killed, there was no Kohen Gadol. There's another element to this, which, we'll, which maybe we'll get into in a few minutes. Okay. But now the question is, why? What do you want from the Kohen Gadol? What do you want from the Kohen Gadol? If to stay in the city of refuge till the death of the Kohen the Torah could have said anything. If to stay in the city of refuge until a lunar eclipse, a solar eclipse, uh, I don't know what, until... Uh, the death of the Nazi until, uh, who knows? Ongechapt. Why? Now, in general, in Torah, we don't really ask these kinds of questions. Why? Why? Because Hashem said so. That's why. But yet here, the Gemara does ask why. And the Mephoshim go to town to discuss the reasons for this particular halacha. I'll quote some of them, but, but there are many more. The first two Rashi quotes, very famous. Rashi says, the death of the Kohen Gadol. Why? Shehu, that he, the Kohen Gadol, says, Rashi, the Kohen Gadol is trying to make the Shechina rest among the Jews and to grant the Jews long life. And this unintentional murderer 
by, by murdering another Jew is being Mesalek the Shkina. He's doing the opposite of what the Kohen Gadol is doing. The Kohen Gadol is trying to bring Hashem's presence into the world and to grant the Jews long life. And this individual is pushing away the Shekhinah and cutting the lives of Jewish people short. Says the Rashi from the Gemara, this individual is not, this individual who was killed unintentionally is not worthy of walking around in the streets as long as the Kohen Gadol is around. So the Torah tells this individual, listen, you'll get your tikkun. You'll get your kapora. But as long as the Kohen Gadol who was around at the time of the murder is alive, the individual whose work you, the unintentional murderer, undermined more than anyone else, you're going to have to stay out of sight and out of mind. Go to a place where nobody will see you. Go to a place, so to speak, where, where even the Kohen Gadol won't see you. Get out of society. Get out of the presence of the Kohen Gadol. The Kohen Gadol is working every day to make Jews live longer, to bring Hashem's presence in the world. And you're doing the opposite. Arois. According to this reason, it's, it's because of the holiness of the Kohen Gadol that we expel this individual. Um, we don't want him around. He, he's not worthy of being in the same universe, so to speak as the Kohen Gadol, who's working so hard to do the exact opposite of what, this, of what this individual has done. All right, it's actually a difficult reason to understand, but that's that's what Rashi says from the Gemara. Why do I say it's a difficult reason to understand? Because, because after this Kohen Gadol, there's going to be another Kohen Gadol. So why is it okay for him to be out of the city of refuge in the lifetime of the next Kohen Gadol. So you have to say, because he didn't do anything to the next Kohen Gadol. All right, it remains to be explained. I'm not gonna get into that today. Dovaracher, another explanation says Rashi, this one, I think even more famous. This one is not because of the holiness of the Kohen Gadol, quite the contrary. In this case, according to this reason, we're actually in part placing blame on the Kohen Gadol. The Kohen Gadol should have davened that an umglik, that a catastrophe, that a, that a, that a, a crime like this should not have taken place in his lifetime. One Jew takes the life of another Jew. I mean, he should have davened that this should never happen. And the fact that it happened, and it happened on his watch, means that he, he either didn't daven or he didn't daven enough that this that such a thing shouldn't happen, and therefore he's in part responsible. So we make the individual go to the city of refuge, and as long, and he can only leave, he can only leave once the Kohen Gadol dies, because the Kohen Gadol should have davened that this should never happen. All right, again, a difficult reason to understand. So, so, why, so, why is the, so why is the Torah saying that he can leave when, this, when the Kohen Gadol dies? So here the commentaries do, do move in and they add another very famous part also that's mentioned in the Gemara. The Gemara says that since the people in the cities of refuge knew they had to wait in the cities of refuge until the Kohen Gadol would die, the Gemara says, Therefore, they would daven every day 
for the death of the Kohen Gadol. This was the consequence. Because the Kohen Gadol didn't doubt that things like this should not happen during his lifetime, therefore the people who would go to the cities of refuge were told that they had to stay there till the death of the Kohen Gadol, knowing that they would doubt that the Kohen Gadol should die. Very harsh. This is, this is, this is brutal. This is brutal. Make no mistake. This is a brutal consequence for the Kohen Gadol. The Torah says, you didn't daven enough, you the Kohen Gadol didn't daven enough that such things should not happen in your generation. Under your watch, this should not happen. The consequence you're going to face The consequence you're going to face is that people will go to the city of refuge and Torah will put them in a position where they're motivated to daven for your death so that they can be freed. The Gemara adds very famously that the mothers of the Kahanim Gedolim would go to the cities of refuge and plead with the people that they not daven that their sons should die. Right? They would bring them gifts and food and all sorts of things. It turned into a whole geshefft turned into a whole business that the mothers would, dive, would, would give gifts of food and, and others to these unintentional murderers that they shouldn't daven that their sons should die. There's a chas, parenthetically, open bracket, there's a Hasidic story, a very typical Hasidic style. There's a Hasidic story, the Hasidic legend that um, the Baal Shem Tov once was davening that a certain decree that was decreed in heaven against the Jews should be annulled. He was davening that this, whatever was, whatever the decree was, that this decree should be annulled. And he was having no success. The Baal Shem Tov was davening and he was having no success. He wasn't able to annul the decree. So it says that he gathered, he saw it wasn't working, so he gathered a bunch of Ganovim. I was like, hey, Tomas. He gathered a bunch of thieves. Now, I always wonder, how did he find the thieves? What, what did he do? Look them up in the yellow pages? You know. <laughs> but that's not, I was like, hey, Tomas. He gathered all the local Ganovim and he said, I need all of you, the Ganovim, I need you in Shul at 6 o'clock a.m. to make a minion fatilim. And they came, the Baal Shem Tov and the Ganovim, and they davened together, and the Gzeira was abolished. <laughs> it's hard to tell the story with a straight face because it's so obviously uh, the story is so obviously a spiritual story. But anyways, this, this is the way it's told. The decree was abolished. So somebody once came to the Baal Shem Tov later and said, Rebbe, of all the people you choose to daven with, you know, you couldn't at least uh, gather a bunch of attorneys. I mean, you know, come on. Why Ganovim? And the Rebbe, did it work? The davening with the Ganovim, did it work? Well, Shem Tov said, actually, as a matter of fact, it did work. They said, Rebbe, what's the pshat? What does that mean? So the Baal Shem Tov answered in his typical style. Baal Shem Tov said, look, I was davening, and I saw that all the gates of, of heaven were not opening before me. They were all locked. I couldn't get in. So I figured, who are the masters at getting into gates to places where the things are locked and you can't get in. And I realized, Ganovim, that's literally what they do for a living. They always break into 
locked rooms, they pick locks, right? That's, that's, what they, that's what they do for a living. So who better to open the heavenly gates when they are locked other than Ganovim? So I gathered the Ganovim and we daven, and they managed to break through the locks and open the gates and at Phyllis were accepted. All right, the story obviously has a deeper meaning, but that's the story. The reason why I'm saying this is because if you think about what the Gemara is saying, it's unbelievable. You have a coin godl. You have a coin godl. The coin godl who goes into the Kodesh HaKadoshim, who davens on behalf of Klal Yisrael. I mean, I mean the coin godl. The Gemara says very famously that 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 Oish Rabbeinu was supposed to be the coin godl. It was actually a consequence. The Rabbeinu Shalom took it away from him and gave it to his brother Aaron. So you have the coin godl in the Kodesh HaKadoshim. And then you have individuals in the city of refuge who are there because they murdered unintentionally. And the Torah says they need a kapora for, for taking the life of another Jew. And they are going to daven that he, the Kohen Godel, should die so that they can get out. And their tefillahs are so powerful that the mothers of the Kohanim Gedolim would run around and beg them not to daven, right? Like the Ganovin. Please da- beg them not to daven for the deaths of, the, for the deaths of their sons. And the Torah says even that was a consequence for the Kohen Gadol, for him not davening, that these kinds of things shouldn't happen. Okay. That's the two reasons. So number one, because the Kohen Gadol is, is being marich yomim, is, is making Jews live long. This individual is cutting the lives of Jews short. Number two, the Kohen Gadol should have davened that, that nobody should die unintentionally during his lifetime. The Gemara adds a third reason. Um, which is actually, it's, it's a bit of a nuanced reason. You'll bear with me, and then I want to get to the fourth reason, which, which, which is the one I want to focus on for today. The third reason the Gemara says is that the Kohen Godel should have davened that the Bezdin, in assessing the case of this in, unintentional murder, should have found him innocent. I actually think we discussed this in one of the previous years, in one of the Shiurim. But that's what the Gemara says. The Kohen Godel should have davened that the Bezdin, in assessing his case, should have found him not being obligated to go to the, to, to go to the Irmikla. Now, now, what in heaven's name does that mean? So it's like I mentioned before, there's generally three categories in Allah. It's called Mezid, Shoigig, and Onus, or Onus. Mezid means intentional, Shoigig means unintentional, Honest means beyond your control. The Gemara says there's many levels in between, right? It's korov lamezid, it's korov l'shoigid, it's korov l'onus, etc. When an individual murdered, it wasn't that simple, right? He murdered, and, uh, you know, if it was intentional death, if it was unintentional, it was, it was not, it was not, it was not that simple at all. There was a dion. Bezdin would sit and assess how responsible he really is. Too much responsibility was considered mezid or korov l'mezid. Insufficient responsibility was considered onus or korov l'onus. Shoigig, the unintentional case, was actually smack in the middle. And the Gemara gets into it, it was very nuanced, right? For example, the Gemara says, any mistake that happens while a person is in an upward motion is considered beyond your control. Downward motion is considered unintentional. Right? We all know the famous case the Gemara gives about a person who falls off a ladder, 
right? There's one Jew who fall, falls off a ladder, another Jew is sitting next to the ladder, the Jew who falls off the ladder, Rahman falls on the Jew sitting next to the ladder and kills him, he goes to the city of refuge. Everybody knows this, right? Famous Medrash. The Gemara says it's not so simple. Why not? It depends, typical Gemara, if the person on the ladder is going up or going down. If he's going up and he falls off, he does not have to sit in the city of refuge till the death of the Kohen God. Why? It's considered korov l'onus. It's considered too close to being beyond his control. I mean, who falls off a ladder on the way up the ladder? Nah, the Gemara says, that's, that's a freak. That's not an accident. That's a freak accident. For a freak accident, you don't have to go to the city of refuge. If he falls off the ladder on his way down, ah, now he's considered a shaykh again. Now he has to go to the city of refuge. There are many other such examples. So the Gemara says the Koyun Godel, another reason why the individual has to stay in the city of refuge till the Koyun Godel dies, not just the Koyun Godel should have davened that these things should not have happened in his lifetime. True. Besides for that, the Koyun Godel should have davened that Bezdin in assessing his case should have found him to be not sufficiently liable to have to go to the city of refuge. It's a, this is a wild Gomorrah. The Kohen Godel should have davened that Bezdin's perspective on the Jew should be such that they find him not sufficiently negligent to have to go to the city of refuge and find him <coughs> his responsibility too far removed from the case. And because he didn't daven, and Bezdin found him not completely guilty, but guilty enough to have to spend the rest, of the, to have to go to the Kohen Godel, the Kohen Godel is in part responsible for that, and therefore he stays in the city of refuge till the death of the Kohen Godel. For this reason, the Gemara says, the Gemara gives a very a, a scenario. This is what the Gemara says. What happens if Ruven kills a Jew, let's say on Sunday, right? Kills a Jew on Sunday. The Kohen Godel dies on Monday. Let's say they appoint a new Kohen Godel on Tuesday. But this individual's case, the, the, the case of the, of the unintentional murderer, only comes before Besden on Wednesday. So it means he killed somebody in the life of one Kohen Godel, but Besden rules that he has to go to the city of refuge in the life of the second Kohen Godel. The Gomorrah says he has to stay in the city of refuge until the second Kohen Godel dies. Now you'll ask a question, why? But he wasn't the Kohen Godel when the, when the murder happened. What do you want from him? That he should have davened that, that they should have davened that these kinds of things should not happen on his watch. It didn't happen on his watch. It happened on the watch of a different Kohen Godel. Says the Gomorrah, yeah. But the ruling of Bezdin happened on your watch. You should have davened that Bezdin should have given a different ruling. Okay. Reason number four is the reason I want to discuss today. This reason comes from the Chidot. The Chidot quotes it in the name of a sefer called Lekutei Gurei Ho'ari, which I assume, of course, is referring to the Maharal. The Maharal gives a spiritual explanation. The Maharal says like this. Here's what happens. One Jew kills another Jew unintentionally. Right? Falls off a ladder, falls on another Jew. Now the Jew on the bottom of the ladder has now passed. 
Says the Chidah, what happens is that his neshama, the soul of the nirtzach, the soul of the victim, is called neshamas artiloin. Neshamas artiloin means it's a spiritually lost soul. The soul of the victim is a spiritually lost soul. Why is the soul of the victim lost? Well, because on a simple level, because it's been cut short. In other words, the individual had a life, he had a mission, he had, he had things he was in the middle of, and now, out of nowhere, so to speak, boom, this soul has been cut, been cut short. So the soul remains in limbo, because this is the way I understand it, because it hasn't finished its mission in this world. It's stuck. It cannot go to Gan Eden. It cannot go to Gehenim. It cannot find the soul of the victim. Cannot find eternal peace. Cannot find its 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 resting place. Until until the Kohen Gadol dies. When the Kohen Gadol dies, as the Kohen Gadol goes up to heaven, goes up to Gan Eden, it carries with it all of the souls that are hovering about in the spiritual universe with unresolved issues from their own lives, in this case, that have been cut short, the Kohen Godel takes all of these souls together with him and it now finally reaches its eternal resting place. So the Torah says, as long as the Nirzach, as long as the victim, as long as the victim's soul has not found its peace, is in a state of spiritual uh, in a state of spiritual golos, let's call it, as long as the victim is souls in, in golos, the right seyach, the murderer, also has to be in golos. Only once the Kohen Godel dies and the souls of the victim now reach their eternal resting place, now the right seyach can go home. That's the reason the Chidor gives in the name of the Likute, Gurei Ho'ari that the, the, the soul of the victim only finds its peace once the neshama of the Kohen Gadol can carry it to its place. And as long as the neshama of the victim is in turmoil, the neshama of the Ritzeyach who put it in turmoil also has to stay in Golos. Once the Kohen Gadol dies, the Nirzach, the victim, has peace, and so the Ritzeyach can go home and have peace as well. Okay, original, original spiritual explanation. In this case, it's actually to the credit of the Kohen Gadol. The Kohen Gadol is the one who is finally able to give eternal resting to the soul of the victim that has been cut short, at no fault of its own, of course. Once the Kohen Gadol grants peace to the soul of the victim, the soul of the unintentional murderer can also find its peace and he can leave the city of refuge. All right. It's an original explanation, but what I love even more is the part the Chido adds right after that. Listen to this, my friends. Open your minds and hearts. The Chidor writes that there was a custom of Goyim. Probably an idol, an, an, an idol worshipping type uh, custom, but, but not exclusively. A custom of Goyim, he says, particularly Goyim who lived in Eretz Yisrael. They had a custom that when somebody passed away, they would put the deceased into a coffin but they would not bury them until one of the Gedoyle Hadoyer, until one of the great people of the generation would pass. 
And only then, when he was taken to burial, were all of the others taken to burial as well. Connected, in other words, to this idea that when the Kohen Gadol's neshama goes up to heaven, it takes with it all the souls, all the unresolved souls, all the souls in turmoil go up together. With it, connected to this, you have a minag of goyim, that when they, when they lost their loved ones, when, they, when people would die, they would put them in a coffin, but not bury them until one of the G'doyle Hadoyer would be buried. And then when he was taken out to be buried, everybody would take out their own deceased ones to be buried as well. All right. Now listen to this. Says the Chidor, I'll tell you what happened. If you remember a couple of parshias ago, in Parshas Shlach, the Meraglim come back from the land of Eretz Yisrael, and they tell the Jewish people that Eretz Yisrael is an Eretz Eichelis Yeshveho. It's a land that consumes its inhabitants. Why did they say that? Again, Rashi quotes the Gemara very famously. They said, wherever we went, there was Leviathan going on. Wherever we went, there was funerals. People were burying their dead wherever we were going. They took this as a terrible sign. Oh my God, what kind of a plague pandemic is ravaging the land here that everybody's dying all over the place over there Rashi says really Hashem said I did it for their benefit so that the, the locals would be so busy burying their dead that that they wouldn't notice the Miraglam all right but the Miraglam took it in a negative sense that there's so much death in the world says the Chido I'll tell you what really happened I'll tell you what really happened you know what really happened there was a great man who lived in Canaan before the Jewish people arrived. There was, quote, a Godladoir. His name was Eoiv in English, Job. And the day the Miraglim arrived in Eretz Yisrael to check out the land, that was the day that Eoiv died. Yoshua and Kolev, in their report of Eretz Yisrael, they use the expression, their shade has been removed from them. This is referring to Eev. Eev, who was, such, who was a great man, who was a great spiritual man. In his own right, Yeshua and Kolev said, a past and his protection is gone. Back to the Chidor. The Chidor says, when Eev died, the locals took him out to be buried. When Eev was buried, everybody else took their deceased out to be buried as well. And so you have a scenario where the Miraglim arrive in Eretz Yisrael, and all of a sudden, everybody's laying their loved ones to rest. They misunderstood what was going on, says the Chidor. They missed the point. It wasn't that they were dying now. It wasn't that Eretz Yisrael was not an Eretz Echelos Yeshvea. It was not a land that consumes its inhabitants. People don't die here at a faster rate than, than anywhere else. They die at the same rate. So what was going on? They were being buried. Why were they being buried now? Why decide to, to bury them now when the Miraglim came to Eretz Yisrael? Because Eev died. And Eev was being buried. And when the Godel Hadoyer is laid to rest, all others who have passed are laid to rest together with him. It's, it's also an astounding explanation of what happens. So, so again, from the Miraglim's perspective, they walk into the land of Eretz Yisrael and all they see are funerals everywhere. But in a deeper sense, these were, these were people who had, who had passed many, who had passed a while before and maybe many years beforehand, but were waiting for their burial, for, for the burial, uh, for the burial of Eve. Again, he's saying this 
because he wants to highlight that in a spiritual sense, the same thing happens with the Kohen Godel. When the Kohen Godel's soul goes up to heaven, he takes with himself all the souls that are spiritually in, in turmoil, including the soul of this individual that's been cut short. And once he meets his eternal rest, so the, the Reitzeach, the one who murdered, can also, can also meet his, 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 his eternal rest. Somebody is asking the following question. What about the neshamas cut short by completely accidental ones? Yeah, it's a good question. In other words, why, why is this different if the person is an oinus? Um, and if a person is an oinus, um, then, then, then why, why does it not have to go to the Kohen Gadol? Why does it have to go to the Ar-Ir Miklot until the city of refuge? It's actually a really good question. Um, on, a, on a very simple, probably too simple of a level, I would say, that's um, because the Torah says if it's too much of an onus, in other words, if it's too much beyond your control, then the person who commits the murder, their soul is not as powerfully linked to the soul of the victim. If there's insufficient responsibility and there's insufficient connection, then we say more like this is something that came from Hashem, uh, you know, it was decreed upon this individual and the person who did it um, does not have that, that, that element of responsibility. It's a better question than, 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 than that answer gives credit. All right, let's conclude the Dvar Torah. I think there's, I think there's a tremendous, uh, I think there's a tremendous lesson here that, that's being taught to us with this idea that the Miraglim, what the Chidor is basically saying is that the Miraglim's mistake the Miraglim's mistake was that they missed this point. Had they understood that people can be laid to rest once the God Ladoir is laid to rest, the Miraglim would not would, would have they would have seen Eretz Yisrael differently. They would have seen their destiny differently. Perhaps they would not have even dissuaded the Jews from going into Eretz Yisrael. Again, you think about it now from their perspective, they're not making a half bad point. They said, we just, we just want you to know, we walked into the land of Israel and all we saw was funerals all over the place. Who wants to go live in a land like that? There's obviously something terribly dangerous about the place. Yes, as the Chido, it's true, but they didn't understand. They didn't understand that they were waiting there with their deceased ones, with their loved ones, to lay them to rest only once the God Lador, only once the God Lador had passed. Okay. I think there's a tremendous lesson from this, and I'll tell you what, what, what I think it is. Baruch Hashem, the vast majority of us um, don't deal with these types of calamities and tragedies in a, in a literal sense, right? Baruch Hashem. Today, we don't even have cities of refuge. Again, at least not in a literal sense. But we do experience in life things that happen to us which make us feel like our souls are sent into turmoil. We have a particular vision for our life. We have a particular vision for our family. We have a particular vision for our children. We have a particular vision for our career. We have a particular vision for ourselves of how we want to live our lives, of what we want to experience. And then something happens, seemingly out of nowhere, Cuts it out, cuts it short. Rahman al Islam, cut down. 
and we feel lost. We feel like our souls are in turmoil. The person, the people, the situation that causes this to happen to us has its own day in judgment, has its own day in court. But what about the victim? What about the victim? The victim says, I feel like I've been robbed of my life, of my, of my, my contribution, my vision, right? Which I was ready to, to invest everything in is gone. I believe that's part of what the Moraglim struggled with. The Moraglim had a certain vision for how they saw the future of Klal Yisrael. Perhaps a people who would sit and study Torah, perhaps a, a spiritually superior people. And they walk into Eretz Yisrael and this vision gets slashed, cut down. They see a land of challenges. They see an economy which is tumultuous. They see perhaps a future of Jewish history in which the Jewish people's ownership of Eretz Yisrael would, would, would be battled and leave behind a bloodbath of a trail. And they look at this and they say, this is not our destiny. I'm not supposed to be here. We are not supposed to be here. They come back to the Jewish people and they say, Eretz Eichelis Yoishveho. This land is going to consume us in, in the way we per, our perception that we have of, of, of our future. This land is going to destroy it. I dare say, perhaps they weren't entirely wrong. Again, in the desert, the Jews lived a life where their meals were provided for them from heaven. You know, water from a rock. Life in Eretz Yisrael was not always a picnic. Still not always a picnic. May Hashem continue to bless our brothers and our sisters in Eretz Yisrael and all over the world. But things can get rough in Eretz Yisrael. The Moraglim came back and said, wait a second. This is what we came out of Mitzrayim for, for this. It's not, it's not what we had in mind. It's not what we saw. And the Torah says, it's true. It's true. There's something called the death of the Koyim Godl. The death of the Koyim Godl, which of course, when the Koyim Godl dies, everybody mourns. Everybody mourns for the Koyim Godl. No, right? In, the Torah says they mourned for Aaron Akoyim more than Moshe. But when he does, all of the unresolved souls are elevated together with him. And what I think that means is that the Torah is telling us the change of plan, the change of course might be out of your vision. It might be out of your realm of reality. But what if the Rabbanu Shlalem is showing you that there's a higher path to take? What if the Rabbanu Shlalem is telling you that your perception is insufficient? It's time to grow into a much higher and much deeper way of understanding. What if the Kohen Godel died because his era was over and it was time for a new Kohen Godel to come and set the Jews on a new path that would be far su spiritually superior to the one that was now? What if there's something positive in that? 
that would provide the redemption. For those who had experienced the cutting down and destruction of their perception as, as they had seen it until now. I read a great quote that said, it says, there's two reasons why people fail. One is because they don't plan. And the other one is because they stick to the plan. And what it means is that success is often granted not to those who are more talented necessarily, but to those who can pick themselves up again and again, redefine, re-explore, re-examine, look for, be ready to challenge themselves and see it in a whole different way. Very often there is where, is where the redemption is to be found. Hashem's message to the Muraglim was, look, what you see is true, but you don't understand what you see. What you see is your own vision for the future of Kali Yisrael crumbling away. That, yes. Hashem says, but what, if I sh but what if I tell you that through that and because of that, a nation of Jews who will live in Eretz Yisrael, who will toil with the land, who will create an economy, who will create, who will put together an army, who will stand up for themselves and stand with Hashem's help and fight their enemies. What if I tell you that that's the destiny of Kali Yisrael? And what if I tell you that despite all of its hardships, Hashem says, what if I tell you that's the real divine purpose for which we're here in the first place? Not just to sit and study Torah in the desert all day. What if I tell you there's more holiness and more depth in a path you cannot see than you can ever imagine in the path you can see? This part of the growth is very painful, very difficult for us to let go of, 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 of what we know, what we understand, what we hold dear, very difficult. And yet like a seed that needs to rot in the ground in order for a tree to grow, sometimes it's an, it's an, it's an inevitable part of the journey. What I believe the Torah means in a spiritual sense when it says the Kohen Gadol dies and with him go all the souls that are elevated to heaven. In this sense, the death of the Kohen Gadol is not a negative thing. It's meant to be understood as the death of the Kohen Gadol, meaning everything that was holy until now reaches a certain expiration point, if you will, where it, gra it, re it reached its purpose and a new era begins. A new era of rebirth begins. which breaks all the barriers of the previous reality as we know, as we know it. And that grants redemption and salvation to the soul of the person, the nirtzach of the soul, to, to the soul of the victim. All right, I conclude with this, another Hasidic story. They said a man once had a dream. <laughs> he dreamt that the fires in Gehenna got out of control. And it got so bad that the whole place burned down. And um, they made, there was a meeting in heaven to describe what to do about the fact that Gehenna was destroyed. And the angels in heaven were sitting and discussing how we're gonna rebuild a new Gehenna, etc. And from the back of the room, one angel stood up and said, you know what, I have an idea. The angel said, if we're gonna invest all this time and money into remodeling, into fixing, why should we cast all that into building a new, a new Gehenna, a new purgatory. 
How about, he says, we take the old Gan Eden. It's a little worn out. It hasn't been maintained properly in a long time. How about we take the old Gan Eden and make that the new Gehenna? And let's rebuild. Let's dedicate all these resources into making a new Gan Eden. He has this dream and he wakes up. So he runs to his Rebbe. He says, Rebbe, what, what kind of a bizarre dream is this? What, what does it mean? And his Rebbe says to him, I'll tell you. He says, we all have a Gan Eden and a Gehenna. We all have a Gan Eden, a life we want to live, everything we're looking forward to. A good life, a good physical and spiritual life as we perceive it. And we all have a Gehenna. We all have a dark place as we perceive it. He said, says the Rebbe to the said, my blessing to you is that, is that which was Gan Eden until now. May the best days of your past be the worst days of your future. That which you perceive to be Gan Eden, may that be your Gehenna. And may you rebuild an entirely new Gan Eden that surpasses anything you could imagine. In other words, he was telling him, I bless you, the meaning of the dream. Don't hold on to your perception of Gan Eden. Let it go. That may be a limitation. That may be holding you back. Your perception of what's good may be holding you back. What if Hashem has something in store for you which is infinitely greater and infinitely bigger and infinitely wider and broader? In comparison to that, what you perceive as Gan Eden is actually Gehenim. You have to be able to let go of that, of that perspective. Not always easy, but always reassuring. May Hashem bless us all as we go into the nine days with a month of redemption and salvation. We should know only brachas and simchas. Have a wonderful Shabbos.